0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick and give some of my commentary on it. And now we have come to the end, to my finale, my final comments on Dick's 1959 novel, Time Out of Joint. So if you are just joining us, you can go back and listen to the previous four episodes where I go through the the first 12 chapters of time on joint and give some of my ideas about it and some of the themes this is a novel that's really a slow burn the novel we looked at last eye in the sky is interesting but you know about halfway through you sort of know what's going on and there's not that many surprises it's it's fun and he does a lot of interesting things with the themes but this novel you really it's not until the last couple chapters that you even really have a full picture of what's been going on the whole time and I think that's one of the things that really makes this novel really stand out and really show some development in Dick's uh, writing so this as as I said before this is one of of Dick's novels really that he wrote in the late 1950s and the early 60s dealing with the theme of shifting realities and by my account there's really four of them that that join together and they're cosmic puppets which looks at shifting realities from a cosmic point of view a divine point of view and then we have eye in the sky which focuses on individual subjectivity and differences in how we all look at the world a little bit differently then we have time out of the joint which is really about a political conspiracy and it, yeah it ties a little bit to subjectivities that we'll see in in this episode but it's still ultimately about political necessity that the shifting realities are are implemented and then we have the man in the high castle which i won't look at for a few weeks yet because i don't think it was published till 1962 or so but it kind of joins with these others and that's much more a meta-analysis of this whole theme of shifting realities it doesn't really fit into any of those those categories it's it's i guess it's much more physic, philosophically based and much more overall analysis of of the theme of of false fronts and false realities so, um, I'm going to dispense with some of the the plot summary of what's come to this point and just kind of refer you to the earlier episodes, but I will try to be brief here. Um, our main character is a man named Regal Gum. He's a single man who lives of a, a life basically as a newspaper contest winner, and the newspaper contest is called Where Will the Little Green Man Be Next? And his job is to identify when and where the... Basically it's kind of like a guessing contest, but he figured out that there was patterns and because he figures out the pattern he's able to study the previous week's entries, he's able to have a pretty good guess of where it is. He's got a special deal worked out with the newspaper. They benefit by having a contest winner who can give their contest a little bit of popularity and fame, and he benefits by continually winning and he gets a little bit of an income out of it. The deal he works out is that he actually submits a set of coordinates, not just one, and usually he gets pretty close with that set of coordinates. He lives with his brother-in-law and his sister Margo. His brother-in-law is named Vic, and they have a child named Sammy. They're the Nielsens. And they're also strangely affected by the things going on and happening to Raggle Gum. Their neighbors are Bill and Junie e. Black. And basically in the first half of the novel, Regal Gum comes to learn that he's in a falsely constructed world. And over time, Vic learns this as well. Margo, not so much. Sammy really just kind of takes it all in as part of cold war paranoia culture, which he is, he's a part of any embraces. And the child is a very good example of someone who grows up in the cold war and just has embraced this security culture and so therefore sees people around every corner and sees reds and bad guys spying on them and all that. Um, and it, it's not that surprising, uh, he just, For him, it's very natural that there's a conspiracy at work. For Regel, it's something that's very jarring and confusing when he realizes that there is a conspiracy constructing this world around him. And what he realizes, of course, is that if a reality has been constructed around him, he's the center of this universe for some reason. He doesn't know why. He figures out that it might have something to do with the contests he's in. It some, seems to have something to do with Bill Black and Junior Black, his neighbors. And... You know, he just got to kind of figure it out. Now, this world he lives in is like our 1950s in a lot of ways. It's suburban. It's the same. We have the same kind of products and buildings and lifestyle, the same type of television shows. But it's fragmented and disjointed in certain ways. For instance, the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin is now published in the 1850s. It's a recently published novel. Marilyn Monroe doesn't exist radios don't exist. They've been completely replaced with televisions. Now, the reason for that is because they don't want Regal Gum listening in on the radio because they're afraid of what's going to hear. Uh, so they just give them telephone telev- televisions and feed in programs. In the, our real 1950s, of course, yeah, many people had televisions, but they didn't replace the, the radios. They had both as a form of entertainment. And one thing that helps Regal realize that he's in a false world is when he his, when Sammy makes a radio he he has to knowledge. T- he convinces Sammy to make a homemade radio and when they do that they start to get these strange sounds now he he ba- once he realizes that there's something up he basically breaks free and he gets fairly far he gets all the way up to a house on the hill and there he's captured after learning some things he learns that he was a times man of the year for instance he learns uh there's video programs and tv programs and and tape recordings about him Um, but he's captured and he wakes up not remembering anything and it comes off just as a hangover but he has some memory that he almost got out another subplot in this story that's important is a woman named mrs keitelbein who runs a civil defense course and she recruits Raggle Ragelgum joins because he's falling in love with Junior Black and he thinks Junior Black will be there and that is all a cover for a tryst. But in fact, it's something set up by Mrs. Karolbein to try to reach out to Ragelgum. And for why, we don't quite know. But the meeting he attends is very bizarre. And the meeting is all about a very specific kind of warfare, which is not something you'd expect in a civil defense class. It's, it's really too, too detailed and too precise. In the sense that there's a prediction of what the future war will be like. And it'll be a war of nuclear attrition is what he's told. That it won't just be one bombing. It'll be day after day bombing from the foreign power. And he's also shown a model of a factory. The factory of the future essentially. And he's, he's strangely familiar with it. He even knows what it makes. And this is all evidence that that he has some kind of connection to the real world out, out there. Or that Kyle Bine is trying to reach him and this is in fact what's happening as we learned in the last chapters of of the novel Um, what else happens okay so then after the civil defense course he decides he talks to vic who's been doing experiments and realizing that he can kind of break up reality and and we learn that there's real kind of actors in this in this world there are people who think they're part of the world and like vic and margo and sammy These, these are people who think they're in this world and and for them it's completely natural they're like regal and then there's people who are part of the conspiracy kind of like actors in this world and then there's really kind of scarecrows and automatons and programs that exist in this world as well and vic at one point is able to try to start to see through these things so he's also in on trying to break down this conspiracy so regal and vic decide to try to leave and the way they try to leave is by using the trucks that ferry in supplies from outside they hijack one of these trucks and just drive away and no one's really the wiser at first. They get out and they find that the world they're in has many strange things about it. Money is different. The money's the currency is, is all different. The, the values are, are odd. They're supposed to kind of carry a slogan at all times that says, One Happy World. A lot of the people are kind of dressed in very tribal ways. They talk in a weird pigeon kind of English. But at the same time, it's a very, it's a military occupied society. A lot of Uh, there's not many factories it's very de-industrial at least on the surface and eventually they go to a diner and like the waitress at the diner doesn't understand paola mode and then while they're there they're approached by some young hooligans who are dressed in this bizarre clothing that to raggle gums eyes seems very tribal even compares it to west african tribal clothing and then they're called by the by these young people, lunatics. Now, what does that mean? Well, for that, we have to kind of go and look at the last couple chapters. So that's kind of a brief summary of, of what's come up to this point. Um, and of course, I've given a lot of detail about the plot in the previous four episodes. So we're going to pick up with chapters 13 and 14, the final two chapters of the book, and, and you know, cover the final moments, which is a lot of exposition in the last two chapters chapters. Basically, I think Dick ran out of time and he just sort of had to, spill the beans on what's what's been happening but he's held off this long and i think that's that's it's well done the novel's well constructed and that it is a mystery and when you go back and read it the second time you find the clues it, there's kind of evidence I, I don't think it's a necessarily that you could predict it but when you do go back you realize that dick did carefully kind of put clues throughout that that gives a second reading of this novel some added benefit to you So anyways, after I go over these final two chapters and we'll talk about what happens to Regal Gum and what the final conclusion of the story is, we can go and then look at the themes of this book, of which there's a lot. And it's very, very rich thematically. And you can look at this novel from many, many different points of view. But one thing I'll say about this is that this is a story that I think we can look at to show Dick talking about shifting realities in very concrete and material terms. Yes, Philip Dick is a a metaphysical writer in a lot of ways, but often his metaphysical speculations are grounded in real power relations. And there are novels where it's not, like in Cosmic Puppets, where you're dealing with really divine forces and you kind of got to squint and to talk about it as urban planning. I like to do that, of course, but, you know, I, I realize that that's a bit of a of an you're going kind of another step in interpretation but this is a novel really about a conspiracy and about real power relations and and whatever psychological or or subjective elements there are to it and there are some of them it's it's fundamentally a story about power and control and how suburbia is connected to control so with that let's jump into chapters 13 and 14 and see how this novel ends so anyway, they meet these when we last met them in Chapter 12, they they met these young youngsters at the diner and they call them lunatics. And after a little of a banter and, and talk about the bill, because it turns out the money that they were using was not real currency, it couldn't really be used anymore. So they have to kind of get around that. And then the, the young people take them basically to their gang of other young people in kind of back in an alley somewhere kind of in, in a slum of sorts and and then they start smoking cigars and they play these weird flutes and they're all dressed really bizarrely it's it's a very young population of people and they talk in strange ways for instance I'll give you a little taste of of how Dick writes their their language He says, one one boy says, here wuji, you make him sit-sit. And then another person says, sniff, sit in a chamber. So this is, and they do drugs too. So it's kind of a, a rootless, shiftless, impoverished population. They don't really have jobs. They don't have anything to do. So they just form sort of gangs. And this is actually something Dick, Explored in another novel at a much larger scale, and that's Dr. Futurity, which will be, I think, the next novel I'm going to be looking at, which has a whole population, which everyone is artificially young. And that's a a very interesting novel exploring the themes of age and the relationship between the young and the old. And, you know, what to, especially I think now when you have this, this growing population of young people who have a lot of education, but don't have jobs or have very poor jobs and don't have any savings and have a lot of debt and they're in this kind of uber economy they don't have that kind of job security i I think in this sense dick is very predictive of of a population of young people who have a lot of their own individual subject subjective identities and there's a lot of diversity of identity but what they have in common is this kind of rootlessness and a lack of stable jobs and things and and yeah of course they're not dressing up like like they work in tribes and necessarily sitting around playing music and doing drugs but there's something here that i think is fairly familiar and that's really this rootlessness this kippelization, if you will of of a population of people now there's also an uh, old woman there named uh miss mcphee and she owns kind of the slum houses, the apartment houses and the the young people say that maybe these guys wanna rent a house. So they talk about rental, renting an apartment in this this building. Regel though figures that he's gonna be captured soon anyways, that the driver that from the truck they hijacked is free now and he's gonna find the MPs and eventually they're gonna be, be found. So he thinks he's on sort of borrowed time here. But he gives a nice little summary in this chapter of of kind of how the world is so radically different quote anyhow he thought we've been out and we've seen that it's 1998 not 1959 a war is in progress and the kids now talk and dress like West African natives and the children or the girls wear men's clothing and shave their heads and money as we know it has dropped out somewhere along the line along with diesel trucks but he thought with sudden pessimism we didn't learn what it's all about why did they set up the old town the old cars the streets and kidded us for years now, there's all sorts of, of kind of one world propaganda or one happy world propaganda and anti-lunatic propaganda. It's not really clear yet what the what they are yet, what these all this means. But there's all these signs. And for instance, it was the same similar sign that was had. They had to put on their bumper of their truck to make sure they weren't shot by the police. But one this, one of these slogans is, quote, one happy world brings blessings and joy to all mankind, But then there's also the anti-lunatic propaganda. Um, For instance, there's a song that they sing, that these young people sing, called Loonies on the Run March. And here's the the lyrics to the song. You're a goon, Mr. Loon. One world you'll never sunder. A buffoon, Mr. Loon. Oh, what a dreadful blunder. The sky you find so cozy, the future tinted rosy, but uncle's gonna spank you wait. So hands in the sky, hands in the sky before it's too late. So, at this point Raggle figures out that Lunatic is referring to Luna and the moon and so the Lunatics are the people on the moon. And so he kind of figures this out that there's a civil war between the moon, the moon, the Lunatics on the moon and the people on Earth and somehow how it's about this concept of of one happy world is what's being fought over. Although the details are are not yet known. And then he's able to start to make connections between the models he saw which were from 1998, the world of the present time, about the war that was described by Mrs. Cottlebein in the civil defense courses. So Raggle just comes ahead and he asks this Mrs. McPhee if she knows Raggle Gum, and then she comments that she doesn't really think much of of Raggle Gum at all. And she learns we learned some details about who Raggle Gum was before this old town delusion was created, and one was that he was in the hat business. He was a fashion designer essentially. And that was that factory that he was shown earlier was actually his the factory in which he produced clothing. So he started out in clothing and then he shifted to to working with metal. So actually, I, I, that's right. The factory that he saw in the civil defense course was actually a model of his, of his metal factory. And that's what he identified it as. So this is what Mrs. McPhee says about Regal gum. Those fashion designers make millions. They all do. Every one of them. He was just lucky. That's it. Luck. Nothing but luck. And later when he got into synthetic aluminum business. Aluminide. That was luck. One of the fireball lucky men. But he always wind up the same way. Their luck runs out all in the end. His did. His luck ran out. But they never told us. That's why nobody sees gum anymore. His luck ran out and he committed suicide. It's not a rumor. It's a fact. I know a man whose wife worked for the MP for the summer and she told him it's positive. Gum killed himself two years ago. And they had one person after another predicting those missiles. So we get another piece, clue about what Raggle's been doing all along. And the whole puzzle, the weekly or the daily puzzle, is Raggle predicting the missiles, where the missiles will will arrive each day and he was doing it and for some reason he stopped doing it and they needed to force him to continue to predict because no one else could do this it i don't think it's ever really fully explained why he has this ability to predict where the predict where these missiles are if it's just his luck if it's just kind of it's probably he's a precog of some sort and that's i guess that's the easiest explanation of, of why he has this but you know, this world doesn't seem to have precogs, but maybe he he has some ability at, at some level of predicting where the missiles are. And that's why he's able to keep winning this contest and predicting where these missiles whistles drop. But the rumor out there is that Raggle Gum has committed suicide and died. So Raggle's able to start to put things together, and then she, he runs into a woman he recognizes, and that is Mrs. Cuddlebine. And Mrs. Cuddlebine approaches him and basically gives him the exposition he needs and she says that basically she's an agent working for the people on the moon the lunatics and her job is basically to to bring raggle gum back to sanity to bring him back into the real world and why does she want this well because raggle gum had earlier defected to to the lunatics for whatever reason, he decided to change sides and to work for the people on the moon. And it's at that point that he had to be controlled and had to be forced by the government to continue to do this. The only way to make it plausible for him was to give him this ideal world he wanted to return to and wanted to live in. And that is this kind of 1950s this delusion of a 1950s childhood of his own of his, his his 1950s childhood. And then you give him this stupid contest to do, and he thinks he's just winning a newspaper contest, but actually he's predicting where these missiles missiles will drop. So Mrs. Keitelbein gives him the Time magazine article, the one that declares him Man of the Year, and then says, "Here you can read your own biography." And so he goes to read his his biography. Oh, and Keitelbein also explains how this town was actually an aggregate of other small towns it's in Wyoming and an interesting thing like you think back and you go read the story there's no mention of like the state they're in or any of the neighboring towns it's really just a a suburbia completely detached from anything else the closest thing we have to any connection to the outside world is the food shipments that come to the grocery store that Vic works at but even he can't really say where they come from all he can say is it comes from far away so when you go back and you read this novel a second time you realize just how vague this world that they live in is and how imprecise it is and that's that's all part of the setup of this realization that it's, it's completely a constructed town just out in the west somewhere away from from other people so anyways raggle then sits down and starts to read his his biography So by reading this biography, Regal Gum was able to get some of his own history and some of the history of the war. And he, he starts to remember a little bit as well. But basically the people on the moon wanted to explore outside into space. And this was their main goal. They were like the frontiersmen, the settlers, the people who wanted to venture out. And they mostly lived on the dark side of the moon. So it was very hard for Earth to attack them or, or bomb them. But because they but they could drop, Bombs on Earth as much as they wanted, and they're basically fighting for the right to expand. And so we're actually coming back to a, a fairly old Philip K. Dick theme, something he explored a lot in his early stories, going back to things like Mr. Starship, or was it Mr. Spaceship, uh, The Variable Man, and other stories like that, which, in even some of the early novels like Solar Lottery and The World Jones Made, that focus on the need for a frontier and so if you're kind of following along with dick's writing up to this point you realize that there's some sympathy for the lunatics because they're the ones who have this more promethean idea that the goal of humanity is to project outward of course to win this they're bombing earth and this is creating this devastated surface it's creating this these very Adrift populations on the surface The military rule A lot of the factories and productions are below ground So a lot of the things that we were were Seeing, these are also things that Dick explores In other works, but They're all kind of together here And this is what's been going on So Raggle started to predict You know, for whatever reason He had this ability to predict where the bombs would, Would drop, and then he got recruited Into the military But at some point, Raggle Gum realized and he remembers this at this point so there's a bit of anamnesia. and it, it's a term dick uses in the exegesis a lot to, you know it I means to end forget it like to to remember after forgetting i guess and so he has this epiphany that i was on the side of the lunatics at some point i he basically defected and started to believe the people on the moon were right the isolationists are wrong and Mrs. Cuddlebine happily realizes, is happy to announce that yes, you've 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 come back to where you began. So then we go back to this the small town, the the false reality, and it's now it's time for Bill Black to give his exposition, and he and he directs it to to Margot, and he's basically desperate now because. Raggle's off the grid and he needs to get him back. You know, now we know that lives are at stake. If he doesn't submit that, that guess, you know, bombs are going to drop and people are going to die. And something that Mrs. Kettlebine actually said to Raggle is that he didn't get it right all the time. He, he got it right a lot, but still bombs got through. So it was never perfect, but still it was better than nothing. And the government really relied on them. So he goes and basically confesses everything to, to Margot, And what he reveals, first of all, he's a major in the Army. He's in the U.S. Board of Strategic Planning in the Western Theater. And he was originally part of the group that worked with Raggle that plotted the missile s- strikes. and But then Raggles essentially started to go insane. And he started to withdraw increasingly into this 1950s. Past. This is where he was comfortable. And, you know, in a way, we, we've seen clues to this throughout the novel where he would kind of always return back psychologically. It wasn't just that he was forced back, but that he misremembers things on kind of on his own. Like so, for instance, when he first was brought back to the town after his first attempt at escape, you think maybe they drugged him or maybe that he was mind wiped or something. But it could just as easily be that this is kind of where he returns to when he goes back into his insanity. That is, when he sees the world as it really is, those are his moments of clarity and sanity. But he generally reverts back to insanity. And what Bill Black is worried about is that he's going to be permanently driven to essentially a sanity. Other things that Bill Black reveals is that the relationships are all fake. So Vic is not Margot's husband. Junie's not Bill Black's husband. And instead, these were all people who were matched together because of, of their psychological profile and who they could fit best with. And I, I think that's a really funny joke that Dick sort of makes about marriage and relationships, is that our ideal mate is never who we really end up with in real life. In fact, Bill Black and Margot are the real married couple. But it's just that Margot psychologically was a better fit for Vic, and that's why they were match, matched together. And then back to Ragel. So why does he side with the separatists, the, the lunatics who are bombing Earth? And th- this is what Vic wants to know. Vic actually sides with the one-earthers and the isolationists be- because he's just responding to the violence of it. He's like, you know, they're killing us. So how can you side with them? And here's the explanation we get. Quote, Ragel Gunn remembered the day he had first heard about the lunar colonists, already called lunatics, firing on federal troops. Nobody had been very much surprised. The lunatics for the most part consisted of discontented people, unestablished young couples, ambitious young men and their wives, few with children, none with property or responsibility. His first reaction was to wish that he could fight, but age forbade it, and he had something much more valuable to volunteer. They put him to work plotting the missile strikes, making his graphs and patterns of prediction, doing his statistical research, he and his staff. Major Black had been his executive officer, a bright individual eager to learn how the plotting was done. For the first year, he had gone properly, and then the weight of responsibility had gotten him down, the sense of, that all their lives depended on him. And at that point, the army people decided to take him off Earth, to put him aboard a ship and transport him to one of the health resorts on Venus, to which high government officials went, and with which they wasted much time. The climate on Venus, or perhaps the minerals on the water or the gravity, no one could be sure, had done much to cure cancer and heart trouble. For the first time in his life, he found himself leaving Earth, journeying out into space between planets free of gravity. The greatest tie had ceased to hold him. The fundamental forces that kept the universe of matter behaving as it did, the Heisenberg Unified Field Theory, had connected all energy, all phenomenon into a single experience. Now as he left left Earth... He passed from experience to another, the experience of pure freedom. It answered for him, a need that had never been, he'd never been aware of, a deep, restless yearning under the surface, always there in him throughout his life, but not as circulated, the need to travel on to migrate. His ancestors had migrated. They had appeared nomads, not farmers, but food gatherers, entering from west, the west from Asia. They had reached the Mediterranean. They had settled down because they had reached the edge of the world. There was no place left to go, and then... Hunt later, hundreds of years later, reports had arrived of other places existed, lands beyond the seas. They had not never gone out to sea much except perhaps for their abortive migration to North Africa. The migration out under the water in boats was a terrifying thing for them. They had no idea where they were going. But after a while, they had made that migration from one continent to another. And that held them for a time because, again, they reached the edge of the world. And and, you know, Dick goes on like this for another couple pages talking about this this grand mission of, of migration, of exploration—this really kind of romantic, Star Trekky kind of story of, of the final frontier—and that's what drove him. Now, it's very interesting that the whole story is one is very clusterful because one of kind of always centering back to gravity, coming back to this world, back to the home. He couldn't escape. He tried again and again to escape. He tries to escape by sleeping with Junie Black. He tries to escape physically a couple times. He tries to get out of the contest. He's always trying to escape, but he keeps being drawn back. Gravitational pull keeps pulling him back to that 1950s world. But his greatest ambition became, after he went to Venus, to explore the universe. This is the thesis of Time on a Joint, it seems to me. So many readers of this book get bogged down in this false reality narrative. And I know I've been talking about it for Four or five episodes now But really this is where the moral heart of the story is It's the necessity of exploration And Dick makes a very profound I think defense of Of This kind of the quest for For the next frontier And that more or less brings us to the end of the story There's a conflict really between Vic and Raggle over this decision And Raggle does venture off on his own Leaving Vic behind There's also, though, the question of then why does why does Regal gum drift back? If this is his ambition to seek out this frontier, why does he always drift back to this 1950s in his mind? Because, yeah, the government created this false 1950s town with these constructs and actors and people playing roles and other people who were also similarly basically had must have had to been mind wiped like Regal because they didn't remember their past. You know there's that but there's also this psychological need Ragel has to keep going back and he has there's some flashbacks here where he remembers what things were like in his youth and that provides some comfort for him so there's two directions out for Ragel from this pressure he was under in this job of plotting the plotting where the next missile is going to be be dropped. One is the frontier, one is exploration, one is to basically join up with the lunatics, and the other is to just go insane into one's past and do your job, pretend you're somewhere else. And who is this? I mean, this is us. This is us when we just accept whatever horrible job we have, you know, because we're looking forward to happy hour or because we think we, we can come back to our nice... Home, even though we mortgage our life to buy it, we return there and we have our nice little sub- perfect suburban home and our two point five kids and our our husband and wife and our basement projects and all of these kinds of things. It's that's one place to go, but I think Dick at the end of the story really is saying, forget all that. There is a whole universe out there to explore. We don't have to be content with this m- this mundane day to day. You know, and certainly not suburbia. And then at the end of the novel, essentially Raggle Gum goes off with Mrs. Cuttlebine and joins up with with the lunatics. There's a little bit more exposition at the end, but I think that's that's enough to bring us to the to the end of the story. And we can start to talk about some of the themes of of Time Out of Joint. Now, the first of these themes obviously is suburbia that's the main setting of, of the novel, and what does Dick have to say about suburbia here? Well, one, it's it's artificial. Two, it's it's, well, I guess, uh, saying it's artificial and fake are the same thing. But so it, that's that's part of it, right? It's it's just artificially constructed. It, it's interchangeable, right? The grocery store could be any grocery store, right? It's not tied to geography. This is the point he makes, I think, in the story of the commuter. You know where a town could have existed there but but for one vote in a city council it existed somewhere else and you know it's basically arbitrary because it's it's all constructed all the homes are cookie cutter all the bars and the restaurants and the people are all interchangeable right and literally in the, this town the people are essentially programs and there's that there's a scene where vic does the psychological experiment if he yells "Run," where will everyone in his, in in the in the grocery store go? And they all go to the same place, right? So they're all trained essentially to go to the same location. Now, in addition to suburbia being conformist and artificial and and all that, suburbia is also what's the word i want to use it's also a tool of control and a tool of power right so it's it's the place in which Regal gum is is drawn down and tied down to and, and kept and everyone else is trapped in there and it's very very difficult to escape for whatever reason and there's a lot of people who really don't have any purpose there they're just stuck there they're kind of like in a prison and um Certainly Ragel is kind of this way. Junie Black, also you get a feeling as someone who's, who's sort of trapped in this relationship and she can't escape. And that relationship is very much tied to this this town she's in. So suburbia is also a tool of control and it's a very powerful one. And I think more broadly, I think Dick is trying to make a comment that suburbia itself is one of the major, one of his major functions is to, to sustain control over, over the population using this kind of geographical form of a kind of this kind of community. <clears throat> now, the direct opposite of the suburbia then is clearly the frontier. And I, I think this is where Philip K. Dick is a bit conflicted and anxious because California is becoming increasingly suburban. And so many of the things we take for granted about suburban life kind of have the roots in California, right? Isn't McDonald's originally a California company? But California is also a frontier culture and a frontier society. And I guess you could say that about all of America and all of the West that has this this tension. But, you know, in in California, it's really acute that it has this grand frontier history, the gold rush and, and all that. It's the end of the frontier, the end of the American frontier before the Pacific. Yet at the same time, it's become the most kind of banal and artificial place in the United States. And that gap, the hugeness of that gap, I think is very much on Dick's mind. And so the alternative to the suburban is really our second theme here, and that's the frontier. We don't really learn that the frontier is a theme to the end, although when we look back, we're like, Greg Gum's always been trying to escape. He's trying to venture out, and he's always returning. I, you know, it's almost like Ulysses. If, if you read Ulysses, you get this feeling of, you know, I got these two characters, Stephen Daedalus and... Uh, Leopold Bloom and Leopold Bloom goes on this quest this journey and he, re- he returns home right of course that's the that's where the title comes from Ulysses right returning home after a long journey but he kind of circles back home and he literally ends up in the bed again where he started the day right now Stephen Daedalus though is a character who ventures off and breaks free of the forces that were confining him his job and his friends And if you haven't read Ulysses it's it's fun to go back to and look at once in a while um, Regal Gums kind of in the same dilemma Do I venture out or do I come back And he, at the end he decides to go off So it's it's a happy ending for Regal Gum. It's you know is the war going to go on We don't know right Maybe this is an unreconcilable conflict In a geopolitical sense But for Regal Gum himself He's able to finally break free And break free of his in, He breaks free of his insanity Not by embracing the old And the conformist And the suburban but rather embracing fully the frontier, even if it, if it even if it means war. Um, so those two themes are really at the center of the work, I think. And then we have family. Um, adultery is a, is a certainly a very significant theme here. One of Ragel Gum's key relationships is with this neighbor woman, Junie Black, who is thinking about divorcing her husband and having an affair with, with Ragel Gum. There's on the surface, there's not any actual adultery taking place, except Ragle Gum's attempts to seduce another man's wife. But he never really succeeds in in doing it, at least not, you know, having sex with her at any point. But he does sort of convince her to leave uh, Bill Black. But once you clear off the false front, you realize everyone is in an adulterous relationship. Once, once you get to the real, the the really real under the surface. Uh, Bill Black is with Junie Black, and they're not really married. Margot and Vic aren't really married in real life. <clears throat> and of course, this novel has, it, it, in my view, one of the, the funniest pickup lines I've ever uh, seen in a science fiction novel, and that was when Ragglegum tried to use Faust as a pickup line uh, with Junie Black, and it totally fails because Junie Black never read Faust, doesn't know German, and it, it's it's good for a nice laugh. Um, but there certainly is this this there. And but then when we get deeper into it, all these relationships are false and all these families are flexible. And I, and I think this ties to the theme of suburbia where everything is interchangeable and even the people are interchangeable. So, you know, in real life, Bill and Margo are married. Junie Black is just someone else. And even with jobs, right? These people have real jobs in the real world. But when they get to suburbia, they can basically be anything they want. They're just performing functions in this this false world and it even goes down to the level of the relationships and you know that that feeling we have that kind of our real world might be out there in the city but when we come home in the to the suburbs everything seems fake and and constructed and arbitrary and we 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 spend more time maybe with our people at work than we do the people in our families and they become the strangers kids spend more time at school than they spend with their parents and this flexibility I think Dick is onto something here about the the flexible nature of the family and it goes above and beyond adultery and I think that makes this this work a step forward in Dick's writing about the family while in a lot of his early short stories it just really comes down to uh the aloof husband and the cheating wife or, or something like that and and he doesn't fully give up on that he's going to have problematic relationships throughout the works he writes in the 60s but you the, there's a deeper meaning here and that is our relationships are essentially arbitrary and chosen by fate um, perhaps. Now the real philosophical content of this book leads us to our next theme and that is just the nature of reality. and. It's actually mentioned a couple times in the book by Regel Gum, who is more of the philosopher in the group, and he studied it a little bit. And this is this idea, and I think it comes from Kant that reality is is kind of based on our perception of of truth, right? And so, of course, Kant had all this idea of these categories, right? We we see the world through our categories, which and there's a bunch of them, right? They're the things that we interpret. The world through and then that creates our individual subjectivities and our subjective experiences but that's still reality for us and it's hard to get somewhere else so when you we, you have these questions like well why didn't they ever wonder like what state they live in why didn't they wonder what's outside the boundaries of the town and that actually is established as a question in the in the last chapters of the novel and then you realize that it really doesn't matter because their reality although incomplete from our perspective is full for them and it is just what it is right it's just like a a blind person someone who's born blind doesn't really know what it's like to see and so the to ask someone who's born blind what's it like to see or don't you know what you're missing you know they wouldn't know how to answer it or it wouldn't really make that much sense or ask a, a kid who can't yet walk you know don't you feel you're missing out on something by not walking well in that case maybe because they see people walk they, they might appreciate it a little bit more but Anyways, the idea of reality for us being what we, ex- what we experience and, and what we interpret. And for Raggle Gum, it really reaches the metaphysical dimension because he does have this internal psychosis that brings him back to the world of his family and his youth. Another theme, of course, we have is war. This is something Dick explores a lot in his works. He's very much anti-war. And this is, as much as we're pro-frontier and we want to be on the side of the lunatics, and i think that's where dick ends up in this book at the same time he's honest about the fact that their quest for a frontier is is based on war and violence against the people of earth and that violence is persistent and devastating it's devastated the surface it's fractured families it's created slums and it's pushed factories underground and and these are things he doesn't even have to explore, really, if you've been reading along with us. These are, you know, we, we've we seen this before. We've seen it in the Defenders. So it's this the, the idea of the underground bunker and the autofact are, are already in his, his his worldview, and we don't have to dwell on them, but they're there. He comes back to them a lot. Tied to this, I guess, is the whole post-scarcity and production. I, I think it's interesting that Regal Gum before he became a bomb sniffer, was a, a factory worker, and he first made clothing, and then he made war material. So he's part of this transition to the war economy. But as always, we're given basically a—I wouldn't say we're given a post-scarcity environment out in the real world. We don't know enough about the economy to to get there, but we do know we have automated factories and they're working underground and all that. But I think more interestingly is it seems that the false world old our town old town whatever it's called is post-scarcity and that none of the work people do needs to be done it's you know like you have all these checkout people these the cashiers and checkers in the grocery store and then at one point bill black just takes stuff and walks out and then he forgets he's supposed to pretend he's buying something right it's it's all put there just as a you know the the whole charade of a market is put there just so what do I want to say just just for the just to help make the it convincing to raggle gum in fact there's no reason it could it could be constructed as a pure communist society right because everything they need is filtered in the money is given to raggle gum through this newspaper contest thing but they create the, the falseness of a market and the need to necessitate work and if we if we're reminded of David Graeber's bullshit jobs argument You know, it's it's for good reason. Uh, We have every job in in this old town is a bullshit job. So that is a is a model of of post scarcity that, that still keeps a market, but it's an unnecessary market. Um, a li- there's a little bit in the final chapters About social evolution And how war leads to tribalism And this disaffected youth And I'll just kind of save this theme Because it's going to be the center of a whole book Called Dr. Futurity And we're going to come back to it So, But, it, but it's a little bit here too We just see the costs of war In this population of drug using I mean kind of culturally creative They play music and things and they're. But they basically descended into tribalism Technology is another theme of time out of joint, especially in, I think one of the interesting things is Dick plays with this idea of like, why didn't the TV just replace the radio? You know, and to be more efficient in this false world, they decided let's get rid of the radio and keep the television. Also, this helps protect the secret because then the radio would bring in messages from outside. But, and then of course it's technology of the radio that allows him to, to get a window into the outside world. So there is a little bit here to say about technology, maybe not as much as some of the other themes, but it's, it's, it's certainly there. And the technology and the differences in technology is one of the ways that Gum is able to identify that something is wrong in the world. We don't really know the technology involved in making all the false realities. We know it's some kind of simulation, but we don't get a a whole explanation of, of what's involved. And then I guess finally the Cold War security cultures here. Um, every you know, the whole thing is a prison essentially or a zoo, depending on the a work camp, I guess. Every regular gun has to work, so it's more of a work camp. But it's it's a very secure place, it's it's regulated, everyone is a spy essentially, or most people in this town are spies for the conspiracy. But I think the best example of someone who, who's a product of Cold War security culture is Sammy, this this young boy. He's, he's a character that's not very important in the novel. He's kind of, in a way, kind of forgettable, but he's got really great moments, and that's where he's got this clubhouse, and he's got all these anti, you know, keep communists and fascists and Nazis keep out, and you have to be a member of his club to join, and this bothers Bill Black and, and annoys him, but he's already internalized the need for a security culture. And that's because he grows up in this Cold War. It's a fake 1950s Cold War, but it's still what he grew up in. And this is how he he interprets the world through this presumption that there's enemies out there. And I, I think that's a really interesting point that Dick makes here. So anyways, that's that's going to do it for, for Time Out of Joint, I think. Um, I've said certainly enough about it. So it's a really, really great novel. I think it's a great place to start if you don't want to read some of his earlier stories. It's really synthesizes a lot of his themes and it's just really well put together i think it's one of his more well-constructed novels and it deserves it deserves the love it gets still not as famous as some like do android dream you know, like a sheep or ubik but i i think it's up there with those works in in importance so um and i also love that it's pro frontier I, I think that's something that i'm gonna i always have to come back to with philip dick yeah he he does changed his mind a little bit about the frontier by the 60s but still it's good to see this optimistic frontierism in in dick's writings as late as 1959. So um, next up in this series will be the short stories published in 1959 and there are four of them these were mostly stories written earlier in dick's career but they were like things that hadn't yet been published. Uh, I think one is War Game, one is Fair Game, one is Explorer's Wii, and maybe Recall Mechanism. I, I forget the four, but uh, those are those what I think they are. Um, so I'll look at those next, and then this will get us to 1960, where Dick wrote, published two novels, uh, Vulcan's Hammer and Dr. Futurity, which, you know, at least Vulcan's Vulcan's Hammer I know was written much earlier and finally got published in 1960 so it's not really of the 1960s it's not a fair representation of his 60s writing Um, but we're we're, you know after we look at these four stories we're going to be in the 1960s and then we're going to have a lot of work ahead of us because we have about 15 novels published in the 1960s maybe more and we got another bunch of stories that that come out in in the mid 60s so i'm looking forward to that um Looking forward to starting a new phase of, of Philip Dick's career. So, anyways, thank you so much for listening to my reviews and my thoughts on Time Out of Joint. And thank you for supporting the Philip K. Dick Book Club. If you have any comments, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And then I'll be back with Dick's stories of 1959. That living dies, that living dies, that living